Today's scripture reading is going to be out of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. So if you take your Bibles or your device and find Colossians chapter 2 with me. I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 23. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 23. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of, of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has had, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Oh, thank you, Dan. And good morning, family. Dan, and, um, Dan Pack and his team will be back. We decided we'd bracket the message with music today. Just to help us just to behold our king seated on the throne. And um, so let's open this time as we look at his word in another word of prayer. Let's do that. Well, Father, we just uh, thank you for this week, this Thanksgiving week. And we have so much to be thankful for, especially the privilege and the honor to worship you. Together, together in the freedom that we have in this country to assemble without fear of persecution, to lift our voices in song and praise to you, to hear from you through your word. And as we open it now, we would just ask that you might speak to each one of our hearts. You know where we're at, Father. You know what is going on in our lives. So use this time to minister to us, and we'll rejoice and give you thanks for it. In our Savior's name, amen. Well, it's Thanksgiving week. Can you believe it? It just, <laughs> it seems like we're just still in summer. 
you know, like last week we had a power outage because of the wind and the dry conditions, and in two days you're supposed to get snow in the valley. I mean, whatever happened to fall, you know, with a little fall green up and things like that. It just, my biological clock is not ready for this to be Thanksgiving yet, you know. And uh, I'm, I think once it starts to snow, I'm going to think we ought to just be singing Christmas carols, you know, all week. In fact, I have a daughter-in-law. She loves Christmas so much that her family, all of us, her side, our side, forbid her to even open a Christmas carol album before, after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add all your voices to that. Well, I thought we might start with a little history of Thanksgiving. And um, most of us, if we went to school in America, have some idea what Thanksgiving is about. About the pilgrims, they left England uh, and went to uh, Holland, to Amsterdam, to get away from the English church. They wanted the opportunity to worship God as they believed they should worship God based on the scriptures. But as they were in Holland, and the Dutch were fairly accepting of that, they found that they were losing their English culture to the Dutch. They were there about 10 years. And so they decided to make a pilgrimage to America. And um, there's about 100, 100 souls that boarded the ships, and one of the ships had to turn back. But as you know, the Mayflower uh, landed in 1620 at Plymouth, at uh, you know Plymouth Rock there. And um, <clears throat> that first year, 1620, um, not being real wise travelers, they, they arrived in late November. And uh, so they were, came to America, to the wilderness in late November, and some of us have been in New England in the wintertime. It's not a pleasant place. And they had to try to find food, they had to try to get established, and that winter, they lost half of their colony through starvation. Well, <clears throat> in the myth that some of you will know that the Indians um, became friends and they started to teach them how to grow corn and a few other things. And so in 1621 is when they actually had that first Thanksgiving feast. We don't know a lot about it. In fact, there's only two writers that tell us anything about it. And one of them is Oh, don't do this to me, technology. Daniel? Oh, it's me. It's called turn it on, stupid. <laughs> Let's try this. There we go. All right, I'll read this for you. You don't need to strain your eyes on it. But this, we don't know who wrote this, but this is a description of that first Thanksgiving. It said, our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent forth four men on, on fowling, that's going after waterfowl, that so we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after he had gathered the fruits of our labor. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help besides, served the company for almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. For those of you that don't know what that means, that means they got out their muskets and shot them off. Okay, they exercised their arms. Many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest, their greatest king, Mazasot, with some 90 men. 
whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, that's the Indians, which they brought to the plantation, bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. So we have what's left of those original pilgrims, along with 90 Indians, and they're having this feast that we know went on for approximately three days, with firing off your guns and having a merry time of things. <clears throat> the picture that I put up there, um, many pictures you see of that first Thanksgiving have the Indians sitting at tables. They probably did not do that. You know, this is probably a, a more realistic representation of what that might have been like with the Indians sitting on the ground in their native dress and the pilgrims in their native dress also. And they're basically enjoying one another's company. And it was probably the firing off of their weapons that attracted the Indians in the first place to come on down. And there's a feast going on, there's a party going on, let's pitch in and, and help out. And then William Bradford, who was the governor, <clears throat> or the leader, subsequently became the leader, he adds the other thing we know about that first Thanksgiving. And besides waterfowl, there was a great store of wild turkeys, of which they took many, besides venison, etc. Besides, they had about a peck of meal a week to the person, and now since harvest Indian corn to that provision. So this first Thanksgiving, they'd suffered through that first winter, and they'd been able to plant with the help of the Indians, and now they had a more bountiful harvest, and they were giving thanks to God for that. And it's appropriate that we remember that. That was, probably, that was the first thanksgiving to God after suffering all that they did that God had brought them through. Well, anybody know when the first proclamation of thanksgiving was in our country and who did it? Well, we should. And it was President Washington in 1789. And his proclamation and his good spelling uh, went like this. Uh, issued a proclamation on uh, Thursday, uh, that Thursday, November 26, 1789, as a day of public thanksgiving, the first thanksgiving that was celebrated under the new constitution. And he made that proclamation to give thanks back to God. You know, so one of the leaders of our country realized that what we have in our country and the provision that we have in our country it comes from labor, but ultimately it comes from the Lord. And then, of course, in the midst of our Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln, again, in the midst of trial, he would set forth a national day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwells in the heavens to be celebrated on the last Thursday of November. And I think what's really wonderful about this um, 1863 was a tumultuous year. You know, those of you who know about the Civil War, the Battle of Gettysburg had been fought in July. Also, the Battle of Vicksburg, um, the Siege of Vicksburg leading up to that. Hundreds of thousands of lives were being lost. And yet, President Lincoln, in the midst of that trial, and it was at the um, encouragement of a young lady, and I don't know her name, that wrote the president and said, I think we should give thanks as a nation to God. And so it's certainly very fitting and proper that we would do this. You know, we, especially in America, we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? You know, if we just, if we just take time away from our busy lives and think about it, for one thing, just the fact that we're alive, 
the gift of life is a precious, precious commodity. You know, we've been, a, we've been in, in our lives, we've been given the opportunity to experience the wonder of his creation, the wonder of the imagination of the creator, the wonder of actually knowing the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life, of which we're gonna be talking about a little bit more. But it seems, you know, in our hectic society, we get so caught up in rush, 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 and hey, Joy and I are as guilty as anybody, and we, we forget to just slow down for a minute and take a little time and just give thanks. Lord, thank you for my life that you've given to me. You know, thank you for the joy of living. Even with the aches and pains and, you know, things aren't quite right. I mean, yeah, get a grip. They're never going to be quite right. We live in a fallen world. But he's given us the gift of life. You know, in our families, you know, the scriptures say, honor your father and your mother. For this is the one commandment with a promise that it may go well. Especially you, Melanie Sherman. Pay attention. Or whatever your last name is now. <laughs> Welcome back, by the way. It's wonderful to see you. Um, now I lost my whole train of thought. I saw Melanie and everything just went right out the window. But our, <laughs> but our families are so, so special, you know, even if things weren't always right in a family, still God can use all circumstances within a family to train us, to mold us. You know, some lead by good examples, some lead by bad examples. I think all of us can say, hey, I want to emulate that from my parents. And, yeah, I probably ought to drop that out, you know, of my life. Um, and we're going to pass those same kind of things on to our children. Um, you know, you think about our freedom that we have in this country. It is unmatched, even with all the turmoil that's going on in the political arenas right now. Still, the individual freedoms that we have to live out our lives in a way that's meaningful, the opportunities we have within that freedom that is God-given, if you think about it. We are so blessed that it didn't have to happen this way. You know, the founders back in 1776, the principles that the Constitution was written on are the Judeo-Christian ethics that are laid down in that, that laid the foundation for the society from which we have all sorts of freedoms. But more importantly than that, more importantly than the circumstances of our nation or the circumstances of our families, is the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior that supersedes all the circumstances of this life and gives meaning to what's going on in this life. But there's a freedom in Christ that, we're, that Paul, as he's writing to the Colossians, is going to bring out for us specifically today is what we're going to be talking about. <clears throat> um, our Savior, certainly, um, we always want to never forget our Savior and to give thanks to him for what he has done, for his willingness to go to the cross and to bear that punishment, not only the agony of the crucifixion, but even worse, to have his heavenly Father turn his back on him and heap the sin of all mankind for all time on his shoulders. How can we ever give thanks enough for his willingness 
to do that. We can intellectually talk about it like I'm doing right now and you're listening to it, but it's gotta go deeper than that. It's gotta resonate right down in your heart and soul of the very fiber of who you're being, that God eternal loved us as we talked last week to send his son, God in the flesh, to live amongst us, to dwell amongst us, as the scripture says, that we might behold who God is, the character of God. And then more than that, be willing to go to the cross, to die for us. And then as he's hanging there, in that last moments of life, to say to all time and to everybody and his heavenly father, it is finished. The work is done. The price is paid. It's over. The battle's won. How can we ever give enough thanks to that? All we have is because of him. All the creation, all that we will enjoy this coming Thursday is because of him. And all the freedom we have is because of him. And all of our salvation for all eternity is because of him. How can we ever give thanks enough for that? And then have you ever given thanks for the responsibilities that he's given you? Rather than trying to get away from them and assign them to everything else. Don't we live in a society that it's everybody else's fault? Who's willing anymore to take responsibility for things that don't go well? It's been said of James Watts that he tried over a thousand fibers to finally figure out how to make a light bulb or Edison, whoever did that. A thousand times he failed. It didn't go well. And yet it ultimately led to success. We, God has given us in Genesis responsibility to care for his creation. And my son-in-law made a really good point about that. He was teaching at a high school class, uh, or eighth grade maybe it was, at a school out in the country from Spokane. And Mike was teaching on that concept of work. And he said, you know, work is a very valuable thing. And he's teaching these high school seventh, eighth graders. And he said, um, you know, God says to tend the garden. But your garden is, the, God didn't say tend the whole universe or the whole world. He said, tend the garden. And what he meant was that the responsibility God's given each one of us is your garden. For a young child, it may be just keeping his bedroom neat or making his bed neat or clearing the table well or setting the table well. That area that's right in front of you, that's your responsibility. But do all things to the glory of God. And how meaningless life would be without responsibility, huh? Isn't it a joy to be a mom and to nurse and care for a young child? that you've given birth to, you know. Us guys are never gonna understand that like you women can. But isn't it a joy, men, to be able to work hard and take care of your families, you know, by the gifts and skills that God has given to you, you know. Have you ever really thought about that? Have you ever really given thanks to God for the responsibilities he's given to you? Yeah. We have lots to be thankful for, so much to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving week. Okay. <clears throat> we finished last week 
with this verse here from Colossians 2, 9 through 13. Specifically, what can we give thanks for? Really nailing it down is what he's done for us by going to the cross. And this was kind of the, the summation of last week. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is the true and living God. In him, we have been made complete if we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. In him, we also have been circumcised. And what he means by that is not a physical circumcision, but a placing us within his chosen people, the Jewish nation. We are, as Gentiles, grafted on to those chosen people. We have been spiritually circumcised, placed into God's family, if we accept Christ as our Savior. Buried with him in baptism, raised up with him through faith. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of works that any person can boast. It's our faith in what Jesus Christ has done and nothing that we can do in our, of ourselves that leads us to salvation. And he made us alive together with him. He's done all this for us. Made us alive together with him for all eternity. And when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that banquet that he's going to spread forth for all that have believed for all eternity, it is going to be some kind of Thanksgiving feast. You know, some will say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God these questions. And yeah, there's a lot of questions we could ask. We all have them. I tell you what, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be flat on my face just giving thanks that I'm there, that my Savior died for me, an unrighteous sinner. Thank you, Father, for just sending your son to die for me. And Johnny Erickson taught us, said, that's the first thing she's going to do. If you know her story, she's been in a wheelchair now for 50 years, quadriplegic, eloquent speaker for the Lord. And she talks about the pain and suffering a little bit that she's gone through over these 50 years and not being able to use her arms, her hands, her legs, basically anything. She says, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to fall on these legs on my face. And when he raises me up after that on resurrected body, that legs that work and knees that work and hands that work, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run. I haven't gotten to run in 50 years. And then I'm going to comb my hair all by myself. <laughs> you know, little things we take for granted. How many of us got dressed this morning because we could and combed our hair because we could and brushed our teeth. Simple little things. In eternity, we're going to be able to do it all. So then we pick it up, this wonderful story that we've been talking about of the wonder of God's grace. And when Dan and I were talking about the music today, we decided what we're going to do after I finish my part here, he's going to come and lead us in just some celebratory music of God's wonder, that we can just sing back to him, our love for him, and our thanks for him on this Thanksgiving Sunday. So as we pick it up from where Dan was reading, Paul writes here to this church in Colossae because they're made up of Jews and Gentiles in this. And the part I want to focus in on right now is first he talks to the Jewish brethren and he says, let no one look, pardon me, let no one act as your judge regarding food or drink 
And that comes from Leviticus 11. Those are the dietary laws. These are all the things that you should eat and that you're forbidden to eat. Okay? So if you want to go and read all those, and there's quite a list. It's, it's, it's really detailed there in Leviticus 11 of the kinds of things you can eat and the things you should not eat. And then also with regard to festivals. And those are found in Leviticus 23. And you have the annual celebratory festivals. Then you have the new moon types, monthly festivals. And then you have the weekly festivals of the Sabbath day. And those are, again, laid out for us in Exodus 23. I'm sorry, Leviticus 23. But they're basically all keeping the law. Okay, this is what was required for us to do. Paul, writing to the Galatians, that know Jesus Christ as their Savior, says, you have been severed, if you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Because law is works, right? You're doing something to be holy. But in our, in our sinful condition, we can never do enough to be holy. And so there's never a confidence in that that I can do enough. Maybe I die, I've been working really hard and, and I'm trying to do it right and I just, then today I die, was that enough? Did I keep the law well enough? And so Christ frees us from the law by fulfilling the law for us, living a perfect life. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. That is not it. If you think your good works are going to get you into heaven, this God is saying to you, you can't do enough good works to become holy enough to be in the presence of the most holy God. That is a burden like 25,000 pounds of lead sitting on your shoulders, and you're trying to get rid of it. And if you're burdened by that, the good news is you don't have to be. You don't have to be. And I, speaking here and looking at you this morning, I have no idea where your spiritual condition is, where you're at in your heart with respect to a relationship with God. But I am here to proclaim God's truth to you that you cannot work your way into heaven. There's something better. Because you gotta remember this, as we looked at just a minute ago. It's the same verse. But in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him, you have been made complete. That means in Jesus Christ, you attain the holiness necessary and the righteousness necessary to be with a holy and righteous God for all eternity. In him. Who? Christ. In him. And how do you get in him? The scripture tells us you get in him by accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and then he places you in the body of Christ, which is the church. Have you ever, sidelight, rabbit trail, just thought of it. You ever asked the question of anybody, why are we Oak Grove Bible Fellowship instead of Oak Grove Bible Church? Well, it's because in scripture, the church is the universal body of Christ. It's all of us that name the name of Jesus Christ as our Savior. We are the church, but we happen to fellowship together 
here at Oak Grove. So we are a fellowship of the universal church. And that's why our name reflects that. In him, you were also circumcised, as we talked about. We were buried with him in baptism, raised up with him through faith. He made us alive together with him. It's not of works that any should boast. Then he takes on the Gentiles in the next part, where he addresses them. Don't look, don't let anyone take away the prize. By delighting in self-abasement, by delighting in the worship of angels, by visions proclaimed as truth, inflated by the arrogance of the fleshly mind. There are, I, I went online when I got to this part and I typed in, what are views on eternal life? Well, there's the Hindu and the Buddhist. They believe in reincarnation. It's a circular thing. The Hindu, or, or the, let's see, which one was it? The, yes, the Hindu believe that you're going to go through one million different lives before you cycle back through to become a human again. Well, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> and the Buddhists believe there's certain levels of spirituality that depend on how well you live out your life. You're going to be reincarnated at these. You could be reincarnated as a god or a person or a subperson, whatever that is. And, a number, and I'm not an expert on these at all, but just reading very quickly to give you some idea. These, these are concepts from the fleshly mind about what eternal life is, and they're circular. You're going to come back around sometime. There's other, there's annihilation, which I have talked to many people that believe basically when we die, that's just it. Just like we cease to exist. And that comes from the evolutionary perspective. A lot of it does because we have just evolved like other creatures. And so pretty soon we're just going to die. And that's it. And evolution will just keep going on and on and on. Um, if you look there, by visions proclaimed as truth, inflated by the arrogance of the fleshly mind, and delighting in the worship of angels. When I started this series, I mentioned to you, I was going to tell you something about the keepers of the blue flame. Remember that? Three weeks ago. Johnny Rowe worked for me uh, for a number of years, as you know. And um, Johnny and I were um, on a job up by Mount Shasta. And there's the cinder cone up there. There's Mount Shasta and the cinder cone. And on the eastern side, and almost due west of Mount Shasta, there's a religious temple there. And it's huge. And you can, if you go on Google, and you're curious about this, type in Mount Shasta and go just a little bit north, and you will see a huge wagon wheel carved into the wilderness out there. And it's carved into the brush on the slope just a little bit. And it's probably 15, 20 acres in size. And it is perfectly laid out, every spoke, there's north, south, east, west, and then the spokes in between. And in the, simple, what would, in the center, what would be the hub of the wagon wheel, there is a shrine. And it's made out of cedar, and it's made out of big posts, probably as big as this podium is wide, and it stands up and it has an archway on it, and then it has little pendulums uh, hanging there, and there's a little kind of orb that you could probably burn incense in or something. 
And then down below, at the, right under that, down below, there is a, a, a bowl kind of platter there that you can put an offering there. So Johnny and I got really curious about what this thing is because we'd never seen it before. And uh, so he went online, did a bunch of research, and he found out that it is one of the um, spiritual centers for a group of people called the Keepers of the Blue Flame. There's another one back in Colorado. But somehow, in their belief system, there is a, um, a spiritual spot right there between the mountains and everything right there. So I'm going to read, I'm going to put it on a screen, and it's too small. I'm going to read, I took this off of their website. If you're really interested in this, um, don't be. <laughs> but, but I wanted to read this to you, and, and um, so anyway, it's too small, so here it is. This is off their website about a short paragraph about what it means to be a keeper of the blue flame. It is through the support of humans, light workers, and star seeds that the keepers of the blue flame will be empowered to accomplish its evolutionary goals on planet Earth. This is the hour of Earth's greatest need. That's probably true. That is why we are all going forward with the next and more advanced mystical programs and mission service to assist Gala and all her life forms in this major transition upon all galaxies at this time. The starry powers, the flames, the cherubims and the cherubims, seraphims and the cherubims, and the ascended masters are now advancing many souls so all interplanetary missions like ours and anchors of the Ascended Masters Assyriums on Earth are now being filled with those who consciousness can absorb the higher cosmic frequencies we admit. This is really hard to read this. Once we are able to sit on the fringe of the world, we can successfully integrate our, flu, our blue flame and extraterrestrial frequencies within the Earth's multifaceted cultures. Our fellow starseeds have brought us much comfort through the services on Earth. Our members represented are the backbone of the mission here on Earth. Our joint mission for the keepers of the central is truly the mother-father mission of Earth and we are composed of 12 planetary star tribes whose DNA are now intermingling upon the earth. And then they go on. So Paul is sitting here writing to the Colossians. <clears throat> and he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to yoga slavery. We don't need to worry about worshiping angels, and we don't need to worry about worshiping stargazers or all the heavenly bodies or anything like that. We don't need to worry about keeping the law. We don't need to worry about working our way to holiness. We don't need to worry about being reincarnated or being annihilated. God proclaims this scripture to be truth. And for more than 2,000 years, the secular world has been trying to disprove the authenticity of the word of God. And they have not been able to do it. They have not been able to do it. And God's words proclaim 
Jesus Christ. And he said, it is finished. It is finished. So, rather, hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. Because he holds the body together, his church. And he grows it, and the growth is from God. You know, last week, Josh, when he was leading, H, when he was leading prayer, said something really astute and profound, if you caught it. He said, it's not about building a building. It's about building the church. And we are the church. You know, we are the church. But we're not going to build the church is the next part of that. God is going to build his church. Our job, our job, is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the mission, family. That's what he's called us to do. And he doesn't want us to play church, that all these things that he's been talking about are all the things we can get carried away with in our modern society about great building programs, nothing wrong with building a nice church, not saying that, but we can get caught up in these kind of things and not focus in what God's called us to do. And that's to magnify our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, he bought us with a price. He purchased us with his blood. He did that, we, as the scriptures say, that we might be ambassadors for him. His program from ancient times right up through today is that his people would glorify him that the rest of society might see the true and living God. That's the mission of the church. And the mission of the elders is to train up the saints for the work of the ministry. That's their calling, is to do that, to train us up so that we, as we go forth, can glorify our Savior. And that's why the next part of Colossians, Paul says, here's how you do it. This is what it looks like to be a part of the family of God. You do these things, and you're going to magnify your heavenly Father. So we need to be the church, not play at church. That's what Paul's trying to say to us. And I want you also to remember this guy. He wasn't playing church. He cared about some people, his little fellowship there. And he journeyed over a thousand miles to get some advice. And out of that comes this letter to the Colossians, Paul writing in response to what Epaphras had told him was going on. I thank God for this guy because we have this letter because of him and because of what God did through him. I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. Okay? Do you want to be that guy? That as you go, you will care enough about people to care for them if it costs you a journey of a thousand miles? There's great joy in being able to do that. Well, Christmas is coming. We're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. And then um, 
Right after we do that, there's Black Friday. <laughs> um, you, could, you could probably preach a whole lesson on that. But over the next four Sundays, we're going to celebrate Advent together. And um, I'm going to step away from the podium, and we're going to have, until the last one, I get to do the last one on peace. But love, joy, peace. We're going to celebrate Advent together. And then, Lord willing, when we come back next year, we're going to take a look at chapters 3 and 4 in Colossians. How do we do this? What does, God, what does God, through Paul, say to the Colossians and to us how we can live for him? And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really good stuff. It's really good stuff. So Dan's going to come now and his team. And if, if your heart is just um, filled with love for our Savior, this is a time to just rejoice in his goodness. So Dan, come and lead us, and I'm going to turn it over to you.